All right, Matthew chapter 7. I haven't turned there yet. Let me turn there. Our, uh, our study of 1 Timothy concluded last week, but our, our theme, uh, the word is escaping me, series, man. So hard. Series is what I was trying to think of. Our series, Preserve the Truth, is what we are continuing. But as Timothy was told by the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, hey, make sure you're paying attention to the right things. Make sure the sound doctrine stays sound. Make sure as the church, which is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth, make sure the truth is clear, make sure it's proclaimed, and make sure it's obeyed and lived out. That's our commission as a church, and what we want to do is take the summer to look at what, are, what is the main thing for us as a church. What are those main doctrines uh, where we, we went through the book of Timothy and we're, we're looking at the verse-by-verse structure and how Timothy was putting that letter and how the Holy Spirit was speaking through Timothy at that moment. What we're doing now is a more systematic approach, taking a, kind of an aerial shot. What does the Bible say about this topic? So... Uh, what we're going to do is look through our statement of faith as a church. We have a statement of faith, which is, here's what, here are our non-negotiables about the Christian life. So one is the scriptures. Another is God, as expressed as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, his work of salvation, his sovereignty over all things, and our sanctification, him working in us to bring about the glory of Jesus in everyday life. That's what we strive for. And God is doing that work. And those are the, the big things that we say. Those are the ones that we'll look at. Our statement of faith has more about the church, what we're convinced of the scriptures uh, describe about the church and our commitment to the church. Uh, so our statement of faith is, here's what we think about God, about salvation, about our lives as we walk with him. Now, we also have a subcategory. It's our values. What do we value as a church? What are we looking to achieve as we walk along? And there's seven values that we look to kind of permeate through us. But those are the things that we are we're, we're convinced as we look through life. One is a complementarian view of uh, the family and the church, leadership in the church, where men and women walking in their roles produce a God-honoring and God-glorifying exaltation of Jesus. And as he submits to the Father, the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing that about, uh, we're convinced that the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is an ongoing thing that we are to pursue and yield ourselves to uh, for gifting, for empowerment, but also to serve the church. I think the gifts of the Spirit are things that we are to be pursuing. So those, those are the values that we have. Now, as we're looking, uh, if there's a, a situation that we would say, a scenario that we want to partner with somebody else, typically we're going to say, all right, are, are we pretty much aligned in our statement of faith? Those are the non-negotiables. Our values can be different. Those are the like secondary issues that we don't want to break fellowship over because if there's, uh, and, and thankfully, there's so many churches in our community and I, I've grown in uh, friendship with the pastors of those churches through different, uh, different avenues, but I'm, I'm just really grateful that even though our values may look different and how we do church feels different, we are together proclaiming Jesus for salvation. And that's really cool. So if there's ever 
Lord willing, no hurricane to come through and destroy things. <laughs> if, if, a, if a Katrina happens again, we have plenty of churches that we can partner with to rebuild for the sake of the gospel and to serve those in our community. So that's what we're going to do is, is look, so that's, that's to help us understand what are, what are we looking at uh, in this kind of part two of preserve the truth. We're looking at what the truth is, what that sound doctrine is that we want to preserve. Matthew chapter 7 concludes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that you may be familiar with when he starts off with the Beatitudes. He ends with this, and he's got all of this teaching that's there. And Jesus says this in, beginning from verse 24, we'll go all the way through 29, the end of the chapter. Jesus said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Father, we ask that you would please give us the gift of your spirit's illumination to understand how to build our lives upon the rock, but the rock that is Christ. But as a church, God, we, we ask that you would please help us build uh, and, and structure ourselves and found this church on the truth of Jesus and his words. So, Lord, you, by your grace, would see the work and the movement and advancement of your kingdom through this local church for generations to come, God. We please ask that for our children and our grandchildren to still be, God, I pray for three preachers from me right now who are leading this church in three generations, that they'd be standing strong and boldly on the word of God and the authority of Christ. You would continue to use this church to save the lost and to bring people to a greater awareness of your glory. Please, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Popped into my head the generation thing. Lord, please. It's just it's humbling to think about. That God would, would take what we're doing and the routine that sometimes feels different or we neglect that routine. No, we're building something. God's building something, church. He's building something with us. And we want to see that through. We do that by highlighting his truth. All right, in, in our information age, we hear a lot. Jesus saying, if you hear these words of mine, we hear a lot. And information comes to us. Within culture, it comes to us through a particular grid. And, and you can begin to find this in movies, music, 
news features, you will find this. Here is our cultural narrative. I came across this uh, thing in a book about 12 years ago, and it's still true. Our cultural narrative says this. We begin in a culture that we don't have any say-so when we're brought into it. We didn't get to choose our parents. We didn't get to choose our location of where we were raised. We didn't choose anything. But at some point, that culture within which we didn't have any say-so, we are born into and raised within, it becomes at some point oppressive. We just don't like it anymore. So the culture says, here's how we fix that. Look deep inside yourself, find out who you want to be, and express it. So we have culture, oppression, expression. So the answer to anybody that feels trapped by any aspect of life It's just to express yourself. Go deep inside and express yourself. So that means if you are a male trapped in a female's body, what you do is dig down deep and say, no, I don't want to be this. This is oppressive. So I'm going now to express myself as, what category did I say? A man in a female's body. I'm going to express myself as male. Or I'm just... I just want to go by the day. Whatever I feel like being that day is what I'm going to do. But again, it also shows up, and this has been showing up for years, and the church has been a little quiet about it. My marriage feels oppressive. I don't like you anymore. So it's good for me is to move on from you. I've fallen out of love. So now I'm going to express myself with either... A new, maybe a new car, or a new spouse. It used to be called midlife crisis. But understand, that's where that comes from. Now, within this cultural narrative, there are some values and virtues that you hear. One is this, the most important. Your personal experience is the authority of your life. Your personal experience and what you want it to be becomes the authority that now uh, supersedes anybody else's comment. A second value in virtue is truth is found within, and to question it is to hate. So if I, if it's, this is my story, that's how the narrative is, is my personal experience, my story now is truer than your perception of my story, and if you question me, you're not loving me, and I can't be around you anymore. Now, the third virtue is this. There is to be unconditional acceptance of anybody's expression. Anybody's expression. If you want to get a closer examination of this cultural narrative, watch the Lego movie. For real. You will see culture, oppression. I show my students at North, like, I show them the Lego movie. Like, we're going to watch the Lego movie. Are you serious? Yes, I'm very serious because we teach them this. Here's what we look at movies. We look at music. Most songs are about feeling that oppression and trying to figure out what to do with it. But they always go deep inside. Now, Jesus says, if you look deep inside, you actually don't find what you're looking for. You find something that's gross, that's broken. And from within, he said, Mark 7, from within come all the evil that you experience and the oppression that you have. 
Now, that's coming to us through everything in our cultural grid, especially in the United States. And now in the, in the term of, uh, in the, the, the mode of progress, we want to progress and make, make sure everybody understands this new way of thinking. That's, it's coming at us at every angle. Now, when we go to the scriptures, there's another narrative. And this is a battle of narratives. The narrative of scripture, the biblical narrative, begins like this. Creation. You were made by God, so you didn't so happen to be where you are. God ordained it. He's the one, Paul says at Mars Hill, he's the one that says, hey, he's ordained for everybody to live in the season and the time frame that they are. So if you feel trapped, like, I should have lived in a different decade, I should have lived in a different generation because I identify with that. No, God wanted you here. You just like that style. That's okay. In heaven, you're going to wear all those styles and not look weird. You don't have to wait for a, a, a costume party to dress up like the Roaring Twenties if that's what you like. You can do it all. I do believe that in heaven we'll have all those styles. We will. There's no judging going on. There's no weird feeling like, am I the only one that's going to be dressed like this? No. Go ahead. Now we have creation where God intends for everybody to be where they are. But the oppression that you feel, it's because of sin. So the Bible says there's creation, then there's fall. Adam and Eve chose to be God rather than obey God. And it broke their fellowship with God. It broke their fellowship with one another. It broke their fellowship with creation. So now, from chapter 3 in Genesis, all the way through the Bible, we have, we have a storyline that's added to and added to and added to, and it builds. And when you read the scriptures and see them, it builds to this huge crescendo of how will God deal with this fallenness? Because man can't. Jesus is the one that solves man's issue. And that's redemption. So if creation, fall, redemption. Now here's the thing with the scriptures. We get in the New Testament in Revelation, we see the pictures. Jesus, one, he wins, and two, he comes back for his bride. So there's a consummation. There's a, and the end of the story. Now, if you look at the cultural narrative, we have a culture, oppression, expression. People's expression becomes the new culture. And at some point, that culture is going to become oppressive, and they're going to look for something else. You know, sadly, that uh, within young teen girls... Gender dysphoria, gender confusion has replaced anorexia and bulimia as the number one issue. And around 85% of children who have this gender dysphoria end up choosing the gender assigned at birth, what God wanted them to have. Because when we yield to God and we submit to him, we recognize his goodness in that. And every time we fight it, we're saying, God, you're not good. This is, a different, this is a different understanding of good. I know what's good. And God says, no, you don't. And when you tell your kids, oh, you want that? Go ahead. See how that works for you. Then they come back to you going, yeah, that didn't work out like I thought. God's a good father like that. He sometimes will do the same. This narrative, this biblical narrative, is preserved through the value 
of the benevolent authority of God who has made himself known through Jesus. That's how we protect this narrative. That's how we look at the narrative. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That power, then, making pure, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus has all the authority. He's got all of it. The battle of these narratives comes down to authority. Culture locates authority in a person, while the Bible locates authority in God alone. And when we submit to his authority, it goes well with us. Mark Sayers, who is a a pastor and author in Australia, he said, the culture today wants a kingdom without a king. See, what, what culture's looking for is the blessing and security that a king provides but without the devotion and submission to that king. The world wants heaven, but without Jesus. The world wants freedom from suffering and tragedy, eternal significance and truth, but without a God that demands much of anything. See, the church church of Jesus Christ is to preserve the truth until it outlasts any attempt to shortcut and subvert it, because that's what culture wants to do, the Listen, we, there's, there's a prince in power of the air. The devil himself is out to convince the world that God is dumb and you just need to follow your heart. And you'll find out what, what love is. You'll find out what joy is. You'll find out what significance and acceptance feel like. Now, in the passage, uh, Jesus could be a realtor. Location, location, location. You got to know where to build. Make sure it's going to be positive. Make sure it's going to be fruitful. There's going to be a return. Jesus' admonition at the end of this sermon uh, with his Sermon on the Mount, it provides accountability to what we're hearing. We have to, we hear a lot, but a lot of times we don't hold ourselves accountable to what we are doing with what we're hearing. We will inevitably do something with what we hear. We will either take it to the Word of God, the grid of the biblical narrative, or we will take it... Without that proper illumination, we will take it and just let it sit around us in the sands that we walk in. Now, we walk in those sands. We walk in a culture, and that's, God designed it that way in order to be light in the midst of that darkness. But listen, we, we are not to build on the sand. We don't build on the rock, and just in like hermit life, we stay there forever. Because Jesus, in chapter 5, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, hey, Uh, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Make sure they're seeing something. We walk on the sands, but we are not to build upon the sands. We're to build upon the rock. Culture puts down roots in progressivism, secularism, and scientism. Listening to the science is not as objective as how, how it sounds. Listening... Because we have a scientism that looks to replace God. And when scientism gives a reason for why things are and a future where they should go, it's, it's, not, it's not objective anymore. It's, telling, it's a philosophy. It's telling you what to believe, what to think. So where are we building? The wise are those who, 
who are proven genuine because they outlast the suffering and the tragedy and the torrents, uh, the torrents because they have a proper perspective to apply to every life situation. Listen, church, when suffering happens in our lives, we are to, with the faithful God that we serve, we are taken through that experience to that other side, not simply for relief, but so other people can know how to suffer well. Wait a minute, you went through that tragedy and you still love God? You didn't turn your back on him? Because what everybody is saying in the culture is, hey, God wouldn't do that sort of stuff. See, they don't recognize that God's just not above, and we sang this earlier, God's just not above us orchestrating things. He became one of us to prove that he is in the fire with us. See, that's, we, don't, we don't think like that. That's why God's thoughts are not our thoughts. He says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to achieve my glory by not just watching you go through suffering or in, alleviate that suffering too quickly. What I'm going to do is prove my love and my presence by being with you in that suffering. And so when you come out the other side, what do we get? We get a great picture of a strong, faithful God who loves us more than anything. And the world gets to see something that makes weird sense. How does that add up? Because it, it adds up with a kingdom who's got a king and he's eternally enthroned on that, in that kingdom. The foolish are those who are proven superficial because they've tried to keep one foot on the rock while the other is swishing around in the sand. We're still to walk on the sands. We provide an eternal perspective in a dark and weary world as we offer mercy to the merciless and we offer hope to the hopeless. We need to make sure that building on the rock doesn't make us insensitive to those who build on the sands. We are not to mock and we are not to, to condemn. We're to show there's a better way to build. We have the discernment to be able to help people see Jesus in the midst of their darkness. So our location and where we're building matters. But when, when Jesus talks about the rain and the floods and the winds, he's talking, <laughs> there's a certain uncertainty in life, right? Because the rains and the floods and the winds of life, they, they're certain to come. We just don't know when their timing is. So the timing is uncertain. But in that day, we need a sure foundation. We need something that's going to last in those moments. So in our moments of despair and confusion, we need a rock-solid foundation of trust in God. So when we push against him with our despair and our confusion... It doesn't reveal that we've been worshiping this cardboard cutout of what we think God should be. Just taking pictures with him all the time. What we have is a God who remains big and strong, even when we push against him. We want a God that will remain steadfast and immovable when we push against him or stand upon him or hide in him for refuge. A very helpful thought by Pastor Tim Keller in New York City. He said, to have a God that we disagree with and don't understand completely is very helpful because it helps us understand that he's not a figment of our own imagination. He's real. 
He's a real living being that when we interact with, we feel the differences. God, I wouldn't do it that way. God says, I know. And the rains and the floods and the winds are also those times, not just a, a physical suffering and emotional uh, torment that, that we live through, but sometimes it's spiritual attack. And the Lord allows those spiritual attacks in order to refine our shine, to make sure that we really are shining with his glory. He uses all the rains and all the floods and all the winds to purify his bride, even when it's not a result of our sin or somebody else's sin. It's just simply an attack of the enemy. The kingdom of heaven is under attack. There's an aggressive attack against the church. I think what, what's floating around for the past uh, while in Congress with the Equality Act is an attack on the church to choke out its ability to speak the truth boldly. It's a silencing. You will not, because unconditional acceptance is required. And if you disagree, well, we're going to silence you. That's an aggressive attack, I believe, upon the church. But there's also, there's a passive attack. And it happens to be with the rainbow. The guy, which is now, it's Pride Month. Um, guy who, a guy in San Francisco in the late 60s, who was trying to figure out something to coincide with Lane Gesby and... Uh, <laughs> hey, there's a plus there, so I just made him up. You have to accept me. Unconditional acceptance. <laughs> yeah, Lay and Gesbian. Yeah, I can say it again. Goodness, <laughs> gay and lesbian movement that was just gaining steam in San Francisco in the late '60s, along with all the acid that they were taking. Um, he just said he liked the rainbow. They made a rainbow flag. It seems like oh, a rainbow, cool. But recognize, the rainbow is God's promise that we can be rescued from judgment. And yet the devil himself has hijacked it and given it to a people who want no judgment whatsoever. That's a passive attack on the kingdom of God because we don't see it coming. What? I, we have to figure out how to redeem the rainbow. How do we redeem this? This is God's. It's passive. The, the kingdom of heaven is under attack. But here's the promise. Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell should not prevail will not prevail against it. So I have to pray for the day that churches can hang a rainbow flag. And it doesn't mean what the culture wants it to mean. It's a reflection on God and his mercy, that he's patient with us. And he says, I won't judge you. There's an escape of judgment. You trust in Christ. So what is this sure foundation? We need the assured doctrine 
that in times of rains and floods and winds, we're buoyed by it. We are, we're upheld. We're, we're floating along, carried along by that doctrine. And, and Jesus says these words of mine. What, what are the words? They're Jesus' words. And if you look through not just the Sermon on the Mount, which I think he was specific, speaking specifically to, but all of his teaching. When you look at his teaching, you first see that he declared he was one with the Father. That's his teaching. Jesus is God. And that's his teaching that we want to build upon. The righteousness. He also he preached about a righteousness that comes by faith, not by works. We, we, we stand on that righteousness. He also, his words are how mercy triumphs over judgment. Not simply in our relationship with God, but in our relationship with one another. He also spoke about how God is the ultimate authority with everything. Now, those are some just quick snapshots. So what are we building upon? We're building upon Jesus' words and his truth. In John 17, 17, in his prayer, there's a bunch of scriptures coming. But I hope, I hope as we look this, we are reminded that we have in front of us, in our hands, what most of the world is amazed by that we can read God's word in our own language. Let's not lose the awe and the wonder of that. We, we have in our hands God's word. We have the truth. John 17, 17, Jesus prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Make them more and more holy in their everyday lives. Make them look like me, Father, through your word. So when we read the word, we have an experience with God. It's not just words on a page. I, I love reading the word because it just, it just settles me. It settles my mind. It settles my heart. It settles my, my anxious thoughts, emotional wanderings, because we have a God who has communicated to us. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture. Now, Paul, writing that to Timothy, was mostly referring to the Old Testament. But we get toward the end of the New Testament, and the Apostle Peter is recognizing Paul's words as God's words. So the greatest effect of Scripture is that it proves itself, and it's its own accountability. And as we look through the Scriptures, we find these themes of Jesus being God and righteousness that comes through faith. We find these themes, and over a 1,400-year period, over 40 different authors, three different languages, we have God communicating himself. It's all about the same thing. It's all about Jesus. Him communicating to us relieves us from having to do things to get his attention, to pay attention to us. Our prayer should never be, God, I know you're busy with something else, but hey, could you just pay attention? His eyes are upon us. He's God. He gets to look at everybody at the same time. And he gets to, to, to fill us with his glory and his presence all the same. His eyes are upon us to bring blessing to us as we obey him. Hebrews 4.12, 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And look, this, the scripture is living. We hear, and you may have come across the phrase that the, the Constitution needs to be a living document. No, 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 it needs to be the original intent. That's the big uh, uh, political war that we have pretty much in our country. What to do with the Constitution? Well, they're referencing the Constitution as a living document as it's always open to interpretation based on the culture that we're in. So when the culture gives the interpretation for that ancient document, we say, no, 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 no. So people look at the Bible and do the same thing. Oh, the Bible's a living document, so we just have to use our culture to interpret. So really, I know it says that God doesn't want, God says that homosexuals won't inherit the kingdom of God, but our culture gets to reinterpret that and say, Paul was just wrong. He does. He, likes, he loves everybody. No, we're standing in the scriptures saying, no, God really is serious about sinners, all of them, not inheriting the kingdom of God unless they repent. But here's the greatest thing. We can repent and trust Christ for salvation and experience something different. What, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, the word of God is living and active. And this is part of the reason why we don't make time to read the word is because we know when we read the word, we're going to be adjusted. They go, great. Can't say that anymore. Can't think that anymore. Man. So we're going, we're going to be corrected. But when we recognize the transaction of our repentance and submission to God and taking his word, oh, there's no greater joy. And then watching the fruitfulness, fruitfulness show up in our lives, that's why we go back. Because listen, we're interacting with Jesus himself, not just words on a page, living and active. And it accomplishes something in our hearts because it still speaks to everything. His truths speak to everything. Are there things we don't understand yet? Things require study? Absolutely. We have to look at those things and be good students of the word. But there's a whole lot that does make sense that we can follow and obey and walk out. Second uh, Peter 1, 16 to 21, a little lengthy uh, passage here, but I think you'll, you'll feel what Peter was describing. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What's he doing? He's equating the transfiguration, Peter seeing Jesus become radiant, so white that it bleached his clothes. It made his clothes white. God, Jesus in that moment, allowed the godness that he is to shine forth. He didn't withhold it. He didn't keep it in. God used, Jesus used his power to not use his power when he was on the earth because he would just shine and everybody would be freaked out all the time. He used his power to say, nope, I need to make sure... I'm understood. But here Peter is saying what we saw on the holy mountain is what we have in the word. We heard the voice from heaven. We hear the voice from heaven. It's both and. 
Verse 19, we have heard the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We are believers who live by the Word. And it's not up to our own interpretation. We don't... Sorry, I had this thought earlier to put in your notes, and I didn't. Um, We don't start when we read Scripture with interpretation. What does this mean for me? We don't do that. We say, what do we see? What do we observe? What does it mean? Interpretation is, what does it mean? You have to go to extra help sometimes. Go to concordances. What is the other, what's the rest of the Bible say? Commentaries. What are other faithful uh, men and women saying about this passage? And how do, I, how do I understand what was originally written? And then the third thing, it, third thing is application. <laughs> That's when we get to what do I do with this? But we swap them all the time. Because, and when we swap them, we read the Bible And we're more aware of what we think we have to do for God rather than being amazed at what Jesus has done to bring us to God. We should be amazed every time we go to the scriptures. God wrote this. But there's an experience that we have. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. That's an experience. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Everybody's signing up for that, right? I would like to be rejoicing in my heart today, God. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. George Mueller, who had an orphanage in Bristol, England, and, and through, through his ministry there, uh, 10,000 children came through. And when they would graduate and age out, he would bring them into his office in, or his study, and he would hold in one hand the Bible and in the other hand a note of money. It increased with inflation. So it wasn't just always one thing. And he would look at them and say, which will you choose? Will it be the word of God? Or will it be riches? Because this is greater. And it's, it's more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. And listen, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. That's, that's an experience. And Mark said this in his prayer earlier, uh, Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you feel the yearning and the call to connect with the word of God, it's true, it's trustworthy. And we have to, dear church, we have to make ourselves students of the word. When I was in high school, I wanted to read the word. So whenever a preacher got up and said, will you turn to such and such, I kind of knew what that passage was about and I knew other things around it. And I just, I just wanted to work at that. And I wanted to be familiar with the Word. And my own personal time in the Word is just, 
I, I read chunks of scripture because when I'm, I'm studying, I, get, I do all the dissecting. That should be part of our, we have to be doing the dissecting and finding out what God was intending and what, what now I do with this. Sometimes it's just get the Bible in us. Get it in us. Read it. Listen to it. I, I, this time in my devotional time, I'm actually reading a different version of the scriptures just to engage my mind more. Because I had gotten so used to reading that I, I knew what was coming and I knew the word that was going to be used. And I said, you know, I, I need to change that up a little bit. I've been used the ESV for my study and uh, and, and devotional time, and I said, ah, I think I need to change this. I've been reading the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, produced by the uh, Lifeway Christian Resources. So just to give me something else to read so my mind engages with it. We have to stay on top of it because, listen, he's got all the authority, and we submit ourselves to him when we read the word. When we read the word, we stand on his word, and our heart rejoices. And we know we're God's. And we know Jesus will never, ever, ever forsake us.